23rd of February. Um, and I guess the uh, the first way, I guess the best way to get into Dr. Forbes in the early years of the land claim movement up in, in Fairbanks might be just a brief biographical sketch in terms of uh, how and when you got up to Fairbanks and how you met Dr. Forbes. And well, when I was a student at uh, the Black College, I was mentioning, uh, was then called Wilberforce State College. I went to a square dance at Antioch. I'd been admitted to Antioch, but they wanted money, so I ended up going. <laughs> and I uh, sprained my ankle, and a charming young lady got me an ace bandage, and after I no longer needed I washed the ace bandage and took her out for Hamburger and uh, Wilberforce, and that was Joan Forbes. I got to know her, um, and got to know her family, and uh, we were eventually married in Cambridge, uh, friends meeting, and the joint care of those things. And of course, I had met. What year would that have been? Hmm? What year would that have been? Well, we were married in 1951. We met. Hmm. 1959, hmm. I think. Hmm. Um, anyway, it's a school year, 50, uh, uh, 49, 50, I'm not sure exactly. I think it was that fall. It would be late 49. And uh, I had gone to Norshawn, which is the island that the Forbes have had for a long time, since 1830, I think. And uh, so I met uh, Uncle Harry, uh, Harry uh, Henry and Hildegard as well as it seemed like hundreds of other forms and of all conditions, <laughs> economic and social statuses and opinions and, and the whole bit. But uh, anyhow, I had wanted to come to Alaska ever since uh, having served in Finland with a service committee, a, a refugee uh, worker working with the Koreans, actually helping them homestead who were clearing land and building cabins in the woods of east, eastern Finland uh, with the people who were there. We weren't doing it for them, we were just uh, additional hand. So, uh, I like that. <laughs> and um, so, um, I essentially discussed it with Joan and uh, that was sort of a precondition of getting married. And so we came up to Alaska, drove up to Alaska with a lot of wedding presents, all of which were suitable for homesteading. Nobody gave us a chainsaw, but we got everything else. Uh, but, um, and we homesteaded. Uh, I worked for the mining company, the FE company, and so I was... So you got up here then in 52 or...? Yeah, March, March of 1952, March 7th. Um, because the 6th is my birthday and we celebrated my birthday um, at the fish camp by the side of the um, Richardson Highway, about just beyond uh, Delta, Big Delta, you know, crossover, and you go around the hill there, and there used to be a fish camp. There, you know. That's as far as we got that day. We couldn't make Fairbanks, so we <laughs> celebrated my birthday. But then the next day we got into Fairbanks. And we stayed with um, the Griffiths, uh, Sandy and Connie Griffiths, in college, and uh, they had graduated from Antioch, where my wife had gone. And uh, then we met some of the Finns uh, in town. It turned out that uh, there were one of them, uh, uh, 
Tiny Bodeman had been actually a babysitter for me when I was a kid in New York. And uh, they lo helped us locate a place out at um, um, Beyond Olness, and we lived out there the, uh, first year, and I worked for the mining company as uh, first in the power plant as a condenser plugger, and then later as an electrician's helper and lineman. And in the course of that, of course, I got to be active in the union, and I was the um, uh, grievance man for the union. Won some grievances, including some for um, Eskimo, who had worked at Platinum, and were be, uh, worked, had been brought to Fairbanks, and were being paid essentially oilers' wages for, for running the dredge. And uh, I got to know various a real scatter of people. I'd been active, of course, in the civil rights movement in the States in the, in the late 40s and early 50s, and we got right into it in Fairbanks. And um, we all, I, anyway, between the various act, labor and other activities uh, and working, uh, actually, to get a constitutional convention call, working with Dr. Ryan, who was superintendent of school and other, we organized a group called the All Alaska League for a State uh, Constitution, and we had a really mixed uh, uh, group of people. Uh, we broke up into um, committees and studied constitutional uh, law and, and made proposals, and I was on the uh, Civil Rights Committee with. Uh, an old-timer from Bethel, and uh, Eugene Jones was a black electrician, and we put in, in our proposals, uh, some, what I, I think, very progressive things. How we were more interested in trying to uh, raise the consciousness of people about what should be in a const constitution, rather than, uh, plus, of course, using it to lever uh, statehood, and I testified for statehood. Now. But, uh, other the anchorage group seemed more interested in using a constitutional convention to uh, to kick off a real statehood campaign, and that's essentially what I, in some ways, uh, happened. But that's in the course of that and the disappoint political disappointments uh, of of seeing what, you know what we thought was a very progressive movement go. We got together with a lot of other people who had been a very strange mix of uh, natives. Uh, uh, homesteaders, uh, labor dissidents, and all displaced left wingers, uh, populists. That's all like an old time Alaskan. We were organized a political party known as the Alaska Party. And um, it was really sort of a home rule party. We never did agree whether we were for statehood or for independence <laughs> or for commonwealth. But we wanted, you know, immediate action on a whole bunch of things, including um, one of the people who was involved was Charlie Purvis. Mm -hmm. uh, his son-in-law was Al Kessler, and um, who was married to DeLois. We had met Purvis and Nenana uh, and Kessler in the first winter we were up here. We went to Nenana to a dance, and DeLois had babysat our. <laughs> <laughs> boy while we danced. 
Um, was Charlie and, and his daughter then living in Nanana? Is that mm -hmm. how she got right. hooked up with, with Al? Yeah. yeah, she was still in high school at that time, and when, you know, Al was her friend. Mm -hmm. So anyhow, um, they, uh, they moved to Fairbanks uh, later. Not the only one, there's a whole bunch of other people we were. I also did surveying in the summer, and I got active in the surveyor union, and we recruited both women and natives for training. And then we had a big strike in 57, got recognized. Couldn't maintain the union because it depended on construction. And when you had only four people working out of the yard this in the 60s, it, it went into the Teamsters, but I didn't. But anyway, um, and uh, then I went to the university. And uh, important people that we met who wrote us were the Hitchcocks, Ben and Kay Hitchcock when we arrived up there, and Yule Kilcher, and uh, uh, Dave uh, Brown and Phyllis Brown uh, from, well, we were interested in a sort of uh, cooperative community, and we looked at different sites, and this was, I'm going back and forth, it's all in period 54, 55. So we were all involved in, in that and the Constitutional Convention thing, and out of that came the Alaska Party. Um, and then the group of uh, labor people put out something called the Labor Defender, which included Ed Tiga, who was uh, from, um, not from Tanacross, but from uh, Tetlin. And uh, so they had a group of you know, black, white, native uh, labor uh, people. And uh, we had a conference of the Alaska Party in, at, I think it was Christmas 1956, 55, 56, um, in Palmer. And Ben had got pneumonia and he, uh, he, he came to the hospital, he brought him to the hospital, he died. And uh, so that delayed the conference. Oh, we had about 50 people there. And so we went out and buried Ben. And among the people who showed up to that meeting, besides uh, Al uh, Ketzler, and uh, I don't think Ed Tiga made that one, um, and were um, Walter Charlie, hmm. Markle Ewan, mm -hmm. and Oscar Craig. And they were representing the Akna, actually the A and B. Um, it was the only, uh, you might say, mainland, surviving mainland chapter of A and B because of the Akna Clinkett uh, connection. Um, so they brought up, uh, we'd been interested in, in pushing the Wickersham claims because we had in the course of looking for a homestead, I found that those old claims were still on the shelves in the BLM offices in the Lacerup building. Many of them had not been acted on. And of course, Charlie Purvis knew people who had claims and trying to uh, uh, push them too, and, and he was working with those people. And uh, the Hitchcocks had friends who were in somewhat the same position. But, um, the, the trio from um, the Copper Valley brought a, a broader point. They said that they had agreed to the Army using Lake Louise 
as an R&R site during the war. And now the war was over and they would like to get it back. And um, we realized at that point that there was, that, you know, that it was much a broader question uh, than that. Um, Walter's son became very active uh, in in the uh, par, uh, in the party, and then uh, the Spurgeons, uh, oh, Mrs. Spurgeon, Virginia, I think, uh, started teaching at Gacona. So we had a strong group there. Markle ran for the legislature in that that year. Uh, following year, came, got a very large percentage of the vote, and we have Charlie ran, I ran for auditor, because I was teaching school and didn't want to campaign, but, uh, you know, having somebody on the ticket territory-wide was important to find out where there was support. Uh, Coin and Skagway wrote us, I know, on Walt, uh, William Paul, too. And, uh, anyway, uh, we made a decision at that conference uh, to broaden the issue beyond, you know, the political action and try to see something. Our first contact was with Ted Hetzel mm-hmm. on the uh, Indian Rights Association, which is primarily uh, Quaker, right? Out of Philadelphia, right? Yeah, and he was at Haverford, and he came up. I should say also that meantime we had also organized Quaker meetings in Fairbanks, uh, Matanuska Valley, Caribou Creek, and a small one in Anchorage. These are all going on simultaneously, political activity, whole schmear. And we had uh, first gotten the service, the friend service committee, to help us organize a work camp at Beaver to help the village move because the river was threatening the place. And so we had the Beaver work camp, which I think was the summer of 56, if I remember correctly. So that brought in other people like Reuben Call, uh, who came up to that, and, and, very, and some of the people later went back to the States. Anyway, Ted came up and uh, looked at the situation and said that it was beyond um, the IRA's uh, capabilities and they, you know, to organize a real native land claim. Meantime, a number of us were also going to the university taking classes in anthropology and connectives. Now, did you did you write to Ted and ask him specifically to come up because of the land claims issue? Then is that how? It mm-hmm. okay. yeah. And uh, we'd uh, been aware of the American Association Association on American Indian Affairs. We had written them at the same time, but got no reply. But I think probably we didn't have the right address or something because nobody seemed to know. But anyway, Ted uh, put us in to the con- uh, contact uh, with them. Meantime, of course, Uncle Harry got himself on the national board. We didn't know about that. And um, so Laverne Madigan came up, and he and, and Uncle Harry came up. Uh, he stayed with us, uh, and we discussed that night. We introduced him to various people. Well, well, Howard Rock. Or that, or well, that. actually, let me stop you for a second. What was Laverne Madigan like? What was your impressions of her? 
very um, energetic, active, um, very dynamic woman. Um, I'm not always sure that, uh, you know, she grabbed, uh, well, I don't know. I, I would hate to, you know, char <coughs> characterize her because she seemed so, so busy. I wasn't always sure that she was listening, but then uh, uh, there were so many things to do at one time. I don't blame her if she was <laughs> like that. And then, one of course, she had that accident soon after and, and right. died, and then... Uh, uh, her successor came. He was much more laid back than she was. Right, Bill Byler. Right. Yeah, Bill. Right. So I guess uh, then um, um, Harry Forbes and, and La I guess Laverne came up first in 1960, and then the next year she came up with Dr. Forbes in '61. Right. So that would be the the mm -hmm. summer that uh, yeah um, that they stayed with you guys in. That right. And well, he did. Uh, it was only part of the time as it traveled. Yeah, right. And of course, one of the things that's been to organize, or, you know, call a second town or cheap conference. And there were all kinds of side projects. There was one person who was very much interested in uh, uh, radio communications, and she. Right, Sandy Jensen. Right? Sandy, yeah. She was <laughs> getting, you know, equipment all over so that people could keep in touch on the movement. And of course, the. the um, the northern one was the Nupiapiapa, right. um, which uh, was uh, sort of discontinuous ancestor of the Northern <coughs> Association. It sort of fractured, unlike Tanochis, which had a continuity. And there started to be various other groups organizing, seeing there's a live one plus lawyers and getting involved and so on. When I was when I, when we went to London, when uh, I went to uh, London to study anthropology in 1958-59 that year, uh, did stop in New York and uh, met with the, uh, with Uncle Harry and, and the group, I remember down on 23rd Street, some club, actors, I don't remember. Players Guild or something like that. Strange place to have a meeting of the uh, Association of American Indian <laughs> Affairs. Anyway, and then we went down to Washington, and I think Al was uh, came there. And then uh, later, when I was at Harvard too, we had another. So there were there, there were sympathetic uh, congressmen, senators, uh, uh, before Senate committee. Some place I've got a picture of Al much younger and slimmer, <laughs> and myself uh, unbearded, testifying before uh, the Senate committee. Right. Well, now, sometime around that whole era, I know that the, the first uh, modern Tananat Chiefs meeting was in 62, the summer of mm -hmm. 62, and right before Laverne's death, and uh, it seems to have been put together, there was apparently a crowd called the Alaska Native Rights Association that, mm -hmm. that Charlie Purvis and Hitchcock and Jensen and I, were you involved in that mm -hmm. or do you know how all that got started? Well, that was um, that was the continuation of the thing with uh, Ted Hetzel. Mm -hmm. Conceived of ourselves as a branch of, I mean, a brand, you know, within the, the general. Incidentally, case papers are in the archive right. of the University of Alaska. Right, I've been, I've been through most of them. Mm -hmm. 
uh, stuff there. I've got some too, um, but I have never organized them well enough to put them into the archives. <laughs> so uh, well, now, I should do that. Uh, what, uh, in 61, that early kind of, of era, what did Dr. Forbes think about this? Was he just sort of up because Laverne had asked him to come, or did he have any strong views about what should be done about all of this, or was he just sort of generally being helpful, or what? Uh, he was, he seemed to be interested, uh, when he was with us, he, it was more asking questions. You know, he wasn't, uh, he didn't make proposals to, uh, to me or about what our group should do, not very much. Uh, he was, um, he asked an awful lot of questions about all kinds of uh, things. And uh, I, re I remember there was some talk of Oliver LaFarge being in, uh, getting involved, I guess he never did. Well, LaFarge was, he was the president of AI, right. and then he died in 63. Yeah, maybe so he, he wasn't in good enough health. Right, he was in pretty poor health. He was, as near as I've been able to figure out, actually even from some of Hildegard's papers, that by the end he was sort of a, a relatively dilapidated alcoholic and, and seemed quite embittered really about, you know, he spent all of his life as in, you know, Indian affairs and really, you know, in retrospect, things hadn't gotten a lot better, and, and my personal view, I've read a few biographies and some things, trying to get a mm -hmm. better feel for all this, is that I think Lafarge was victimized by success too early in life. You know, he went off basically as a kid in 1930, you know, and won the Pulitzer Prize for his very first book, mm -hmm. and, you know, was, you know, 26 years old or something. What do you do after you win the Pulitzer Prize when you're 26 <laughs> years old? Right. You know, particularly if you're from an old line family like that, you know, or your, you know, your parents and your grandparents are big shot mm -hmm. American cultural icons, and you start off with this glow, and bursting flame, and then. <laughs> <coughs> so he was, you know, by the '60s when all of the things were starting to really happen in Alaska. While he was still president of AI, he was living out in Santa Fe, and he was he was really pretty dilapidated. Mm -hmm. um, so he wasn't in a position really to... to Incidentally, did you pick up in, uh, you know, not uh, apropos of that, but did you um, pick up the fact that uh, uh, Uncle Harry was at Harvard Medical School, a classmate of Ernest right. Greening's? Right, he was either uh, a year ahead or a year behind yeah. Greening, but they were contemporaries. And, right. and yeah, there's correspondence in the papers where he uses that to attempt to go down and talk to Ernest some sense to him about this land mm -hmm. and stuff. Um, well, what about uh, what about how natives were treated up in Fairbanks in the interior in the late 50s, early 60s? Was there, was it like the way it had been down here in Southeast, or did people get along? No, I, well, I, I had a feeling, well, it very much depended who came from where, you know, how the whites treated them. But there certain there was actually a very, a very much of a sort of old timer. Uh, in fact, it struck me that uh, people who had been in uh, in Alaska for a long time, or who were born in Alaska, or at least in the interior, because I don't know much about the rest. Of them, there was even um, much more of uh, an Alaskan jargon. I mean, Everybody, uh, many of the old timers had what you would, some people think of as a native inflection, you know, a little bit staccato 
talk, and I think maybe <laughs> more clipped, you know, uh, potatoes, and uh, you like put the kicker on the boat and. and uh, um, Say, uh, siwash was. Uh, I remember the term siwash was a verb. That meant mm -hmm. it meant to rest during the day and travel at night. Huh. You know, you're siwashing it over to uh, to Fort Yukon, huh. and uh, didn't refer to people. It was a way. Uh, it was the traditional native way of traveling, which the whites had adopted. Because you know, why get all sweaty in the middle of the day? Mm -hmm. yes. huh. So you. Take it easy, swap mosquitoes, and then it gets cooler in the evening. And go as far as you can, especially you know in, in the north where where it's daylight so long, and even when it's dark, it ain't. <laughs> so uh, um, the whole whole and that tended to change, especially after um, uh, statehood and. and uh, yeah, natives. Uh, I mean, there really wasn't. Uh, you have a lot of the people in the interior had come, not necessarily from the United States, or they came. Pre uh, were actually European immigrants uh, who had sort of passed through the states en route to Alaska, and so Alaska was their identification, and that was true not just to the Finns that I you know, that I knew. But uh, yeah, of many of the uh, others, and like Tim Wallace, uh, he was taking care of Ralph Perdue had been adopted, mm -hmm. and uh, um, the Wrights uh, ran their parky shop, and they were part of it. Um, Belts ran the Carpenters' Union. Mm -hmm. I mean, and there uh, there was a much better situation in the labor unions at that time. And um, oh, what's his face? I just got uh, convicted. Uh, uh, the lobbying. Yeah, dropped the <laughs> name. But anyway, he. Uh, um, there was very active recruitment. Uh, into uh, all of the se uh, sectors. I mean, uh, there were some uh, white groups that were the most patronizing uh, attitudes were on the part of Southern whites. Um, um, I mean, the army pro uh, was a pro uh, had some problem, but they were stepping on it too. And the national, um, you know, we'd gone through the Second World War with anti-racism and the whole thing. So it was a much uh, more kind of uh, melded community, I mean, um, than it is now. I mean, it well, how, how about consciousness in the general public about a land claims problem? I mean, this was sort of like, I've seen the clippings, you know, from the first Tamil Chiefs meeting took place, and, you know, C.W. Snedden and these people were really quite aghast that all this shape, right. yeah. but before that was this just never been an issue and then that's why they got so upset is that it had never been well it had been an issue but uh, it was a sort of festering uh, issue uh, what made it 
uh, more of an issue around there, of course, was the the, uh, the desire to get to act, continue to get access uh, to mineral resources and things like that. There weren't that many others, uh, but also the fact that uh, you know the Harding administration had put an end to dealing with the. Uh, um, the filings that individual families had made uh, the Indian allotments. A few of them, Peterson, for example, on, on Cedar Ridge got his because he's willing to pound away at it, but mostly uh, Native uh, families had not been willing to uh, keep pushing the BLM. A few others, too. Charlie Purvis got, uh, I guess, the stars, you know, Alfred mm -hmm. Western. But it, it took Charlie. The Episcopal Church uh, took an interest rather late. In fact, Bishop Gordon got involved. But prior to that time, they had been a very sort of quietist uh, element. I think you know they could have mobilized the people that were active among uh, on some extent. And of course, I have to say the people that I was with. You know, uh, university people, um, anthropologists, people in the labor movement, uh, active Native uh, Quakers and others who are anti-racist anyway, right. so I have, you know, my perceptions are colored by that. But, uh, well, how about that? There was a hierarchy, I mean, a sort of a hierarchy, which left uh, blacks pretty much down on the bottom. Below natives? Yeah. I mean, sort of attitudes. And among natives, the distinction between um, Eskimos, uh, for one reason or another, were um, I think because of attitude and uh, one as well also mechanical ability thought to be just another class of whites almost. Hmm. You know, I mean, they're, they're, no, they're no, no funnier than the Polacks, so to speak. Actually, they were above the Polacks. <laughs> you know, and um, Athabascans were, you know, a step down from that. You know, I'm talking about the attitude right. uh, that, that that I saw among people outside of the group I was uh, speaking of. But even then, it wasn't, because uh, after all, they were local. <laughs> they were locals, and they, um, there were some uh, funny attitudes among people who were part uh, Native, Specialized around Eagle um, and elsewhere, they were more. I mean, the third the there was a, a real sort of stress between Eagle Town and Eagle Village, um, the, and that I think overpower as much. Uh, right, but the, the people in Eagle, the guys who ran the store and were on the uh, and ran the school board, were almost all. Half or three-quarter native, but they were civilized, and therefore, and the village wasn't. Um, but then the village was tied in with BIA, and um, I didn't get 
uh, very deeply into that because I I've never been to Eagle, but you know you come you know people right. and they come in and they talk and things like that. But that was the only real place that I saw that sort of attitude. Huh. But uh, a lot of people with that sort of mixed background were late getting involved. But when they got involved, they tended to organize their own groups and then go in and, and assume power positions in both, you know, the chiefs or the uh, FNA to begin with. I mean, well, actually, speaking of FNA, one of the really interesting people that that obviously left the movement sort of early because he died, but I've gotten fascinated about it is uh, Nick Gray. Did you know Nick Gray? Oh yeah, the the Juice Camo. Right, right. <laughs> the Juice Camo, as he called himself, I guess. What was what was Nick like in those days? Because he, he was just sort of like some guy. Uh, uh, somebody was telling me, I guess, um, in Fairbanks and uh, during the early F and A days, he was you know sort of like waiting tables at the at whatever that, that sort of coffee shop restaurant was there that everybody hung out at. Mm -hmm. uh, he was just some little native guy in town who sort of wandered around and I guess, you know, mm -hmm. had his own problems with being a drunk and stuff. Right. And then what was... I mean, well, I mean, I remember, you know, him at the meetings and he uh, sort of uh, interestingly warped sense of humor <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, in his, you know, not the sort of uh, very uh, not the sort of uh, shy um, um, very subtle humor that uh, most Eskimos have. But certainly, that's I think his description of himself was accurate. <laughs> sort of both sides came through on that. Howard also had a drinking problem. He didn't want to keep going. He had his reserve table at Tommy's elbow room. And the right. Yeah, I've talked to uh, to Jude Hemsler. You know, he used to ten bar mm -hmm. Tommy's, and you know, he has you know some of the mythology that you know bless her heart that Leo Morgan's tried to do about Howard. You know, that I mean, Howard was a much more human guy than Leo would have people. That happens Believe to everybody. Uh, Otto Geist, uh, the book about Otto Geist is so purified, I don't even recognize uh, the Otto I knew in that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, uh, so I, yeah I, I was disappointed. I expected Lael to do a better, uh, you know, more, uh, you know, not to try to mythologize him, because that's useless. I mean, people don't re aren't really interested in that kind of saintly figure that walks above the earth. Well, that's that's my view, and I was really disappointed. I mean, I, you know, Lael's an old friend, and, and I sort of understood what she was trying to do, but I thought that was not ultimately very yeah. helpful. You know. But yeah, Jude was telling me that I guess uh, Howard and uh, some friend of his, I guess used to be the desk clerk at the Nordale or something, and mm -hmm. pretty much every night you know, Howard would get through with the paper and they'd come over there and sit till, you know, five in the morning, night after night after night. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah, I was on the board of the Tundra Times. I put in what money I put into the paper, too. Of course, we didn't do anything like uh, Harry did, but uh, um, that's it. 
the board did not make policy. <laughs> the board was roughly there to approve what Howard had done and find a way out if we could. Well, now, did I sort of get the sense that uh, from reading his letters that it that Harry sort of got roped into the tender times. I mean, he was happy enough to do it at the beginning, but sort of by the end, it sort of worn out its welcome with him. And it wasn't that he wished anybody any ill, but the idea that it sort of becomes this checkbook to Howard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, Harry really did, uh, didn't have that much money, uh, you know, for a force. And uh, that particular branch of, of the forges is all they all had been doctors and things, and he had a good career, and they owned, owned a nice but small home in Milton, for example, and the fact that they had a place on North Shawn Island was by inheritance and not, <laughs> not because he was able to afford it. So, um, and they had been supportive of things like the Association on American Indian Affairs. In fact, uh, they had been in uh, Labrador and with mm -hmm. the Grenfell Mission and things like that. So uh, accumulating a great deal of uh, money and then distributing it hadn't been part of Harry's long life. So uh, they, they were they were well to do but not wealthy. Yeah, well, they certainly seemed sort of at the end, you know, sort of enough is enough, and that they'd done their part. And actually, uh, Hildegard wrote me and told me that. The way they actually got into it was that, that Harry had never had any intention of, of taking it on, and that he had done it um, sort of as a memorial to Laverne. But, you know, Laverne, you know, had a writing accident in August mm -hmm. of '62, and it was like September when Harry, you know, gave Howard the go-ahead. That beginning in October, he fund the paper for a while, and it was really had not been on the agenda, and that, that mm -hmm. he and, and Hildegard had been sitting around one night and said, geez, you know, Laverne really wanted to do this, and maybe we ought to do this for Laverne. So to some extent, it wouldn't have been a tender times if right. Laverne hadn't been kicked in the head by a horse, which is sort of, you know, in terms of how history works, is sort of... Yeah, we'd been, I mean, the, the group had been talking about a paper, and uh, in fact, uh, I got the, I had bought a press, we'll talk about foolishness, but turned out to be the, uh, from the Lathrop Corporation, which turned out to be uh, the press that uh, Ron Juan Thompson had used at Ridgetop when they brought it into town, they just left it under the coal bunker and it sat there. Now, one of the guys in the Labor Defender Group I was a machinist and he redid it and put it back together again. They ran off about five or six editions of that on it. And so we were going to use that, but of course I was too busy for other things. We didn't find anybody who was willing to do all the, you know, not just write up things, but also actually use the press. So the press is still sitting in parts on my homestead. <laughs> I, uh, Offered it to the uh, to the pioneers, but uh, and they want it, but uh, nobody's willing to come pick right. up the damn thing. <laughs> so yeah, that that, uh, that there had been that discussion, and um, I don't remember Howard as 
I remember Howard being mentioned, you know, as one of the people interested in, but it's, uh, it was a general agreement among people, yes, we need a paper to put something out, but who's going to do it? Well, why don't you? <laughs> <laughs> and I guess it, uh, Laverne had picked that up and um, it had started the, um, yeah, um, you know, look, putting it into more practical form than, than we, our discussions had been. In the, in the movement, or whatever you call a conglomeration that was starting then. Hmm. Now, you know, one of the other characters that obviously becomes very important at the end of the Claims Act story, who makes his first appearance, I think about the time you got to Fairbanks, of course, is Ted Stevens. And he came in, I think, July 53. He came a year and a half, or just about a year and a half after we. Uh, got there. He was appointed as assistant DA uh, by Eisenhower, not assistant DA, he was the DA for uh, the federal DA. Right, attorney, right. And I remember his, his coming into town, he came, uh, I don't mean that I remember his arrival or anything like that, but very shortly thereafter he seemed to um, uh, uh, put himself, uh, cast himself as the uh, the Tom Dewey of the North, you know, young Mr. D.A. with uh, Tom Dewey of the 30s, yeah. um, you know, strapping on the shoulder holster and going and writing um, um, gambling houses and houses of old repute and getting well known. Uh, he, <laughs> he also arrested Charlie for mistreating a horse which Charlie had rescued. <laughs> And uh, generally putting his foot in the bucket, like, uh, he doesn't have much patience. And he did seem to be, and it, uh, you might say, I don't know whether he put himself in the role or he had actually, the, the people who got, helped him get appointed wanted him to get the Alaska Republicans um, together and tied into the national uh, establishment of the Republican Party and uh, for whatever reason uh, he, he didn't exactly endear himself to a lot, a lot of them. I mean they were split between the Fairbanks group and Boss White's group down here and they preferred it that way. You know. um, they didn't like Washington even if it was a Republican president kind of <laughs> approach to things. Uh, anyway, but he kept, when he was solicitor, he, he kept in touch with all political currents. And he made some deals, you know, for Snedden, that rental of that place, and helped uh, get uh, Atwood and the others who had uh, filed homesteads on, in Kenai and in the oil field, <laughs> mineral rights, um, thus endearing himself to them forever. And, but also kept in touch uh, with um, some of the uh, native uh, leaders. Um, there weren't leaders and like that. There were people who were interested in the land claims for various reasons, put it that way. Well, now, was Stevens, when he was the U.S. Attorney up in Fairbanks, was he sort of this short-tempered self that he is today? I mean, was he sort of acerbic the way he is now, or was he mellower, or...? 
Was he well thought of by the community? Well, I mean, you know, I, mean, I didn't have very many dealings with him. His public image was this uh, uh, rough, tough shorty uh, of um, the DA who was going to crush crime and not really taking too much care uh, looking which way he was going when he charged ahead. So, that so, so his impetuousness has stood the test of time. Yes, it was very, uh, very impetuous. It was even more uh, evident than you know than a temper, although the temper showed too. Well, one thing I didn't realize, being a short timer here, having come in the early seventies, um, I didn't realize until I got involved in this project that when when Kennedy took over and Stevens came back. That he hadn't been here obviously in years, and the first thing he did is go out and run against Ernest Green in '62 for the Senate seat. Uh, well, yeah, he ran against Rasmussen. He put it this way: he he ran his connections through the. Uh, he had more friends in Anchorage because of that uh, Kenai Peninsula uh, deal, and he got there and set up his law practice and ran for the state senate, and then he got elected. No problem. He also then um, the next year, uh, yeah. After uh, he, after that, he ran for the Republican nomination for U.S. Senate and lost to Rasmussen, Mr. Charisma himself. Which <laughs> <laughs> uh, sort of indicates that there was some lingering. Um, feeling from the 50s <laughs> among Republicans in the state about him from that. It, you know, it, it, that was strictly a Republican contest because, I mean, the Democrat didn't cross over. They didn't take him seriously, any of them seriously. But Hickel was one of his... Uh, but in those days, he was a moderate Republican. I mean, yeah, he was a rock. He was a Rockefeller Republican. Hmm? He was a Rockefeller Republican. He's a Rockefeller Republican. And uh, let's see, ha and Larry Brayton was one guy who was involved uh, in the land claims movement at that time. I'd known him from Indiana, and he'd been in, he'd been the we got him up, and he was the BA of the uh, of the uh, uh, technical engineers, the surveyors for a while. And uh, anyway, uh, Larry uh, ran against McKinley for the uh, Republican nomination uh, for House, I think. And uh, anyway, um, then there was Andy Edge, mm -hmm, sure. who switched over, and other uh, others. And um, there was a big fight between the right wing, the Birch Society had organized, that's when they sort of flared up, they suddenly showed up on the scene national organizers, they sent people in, every, you know, from outside. They spent an awful lot of money on Alaska. I mean, these guys showed up and they weren't supported by lo locals. Eventually they got a, a lot of... They poisoned the well pretty much in politics. But uh, that was funny. What was it? The, uh, the uh, San Francisco Republican Convention where Alaska went down the line voting for Hiram Fong.
early 60s. Did you ever have occasion to talk to Bob Bartlett about it in terms of what he thought was yes, all of this? Yes, I did. And uh, he was more supportive of it than uh, Greening was. But he was also a sort of wait and see. He was more sympathetic. Um, but was it he or was it Greening? Anyway, one of the things that was mentioned in, in one of those conversations was the uh, sort of Oklahoma experience. You know, the, the, how do we avoid uh, a situation where some groups get money, uh, uh, resources that are very valuable, and then get get it taken away from them? I mean, because they blow it all uh, very shortly. And actually, um, that was sort of prescient, uh, because um, the bill that went in that we all supported did not include the profit-making corporations. And that, I remember, came in as a result of uh, recommendations of a group called the American Indian Enterprise Committee out of Oklahoma, which was headed by a full-blooded Cherokee, I think, who happened to be Vice President of Phillips Petroleum. Yeah, it's been Bill Keeler. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I don't, I didn't remember the name at all. And uh, we had rather great forebodings about it, especially because the way it was set up, it meant that the communities would not be able, you know, in other words, that sort of division meant the communities wouldn't be uh, in able to make decisions about land use or resource use uh, as a community, but more as a corporation. In other words, the <laughs> and that the cor corporate management uh, control system, you know, the uh, one share, one vote, rather one man, one vote, and the transferable uh, proxy and all that uh, lent it, uh, would lend itself to uh, all kinds of manipulation, and uh, which is one thing we had hoped that uh, if people organized and borrowed, they would make good use of land use planning, you know, the power, uh, the zoning powers of a borough, but that was a little bit more complicated than just letting the community handle it themselves. And a real um, possibility of all kinds of uh, problems cropping up, and some of them have cropped up. Um, I think much of that underlays uh, the uh, sovereignty and push towards sovereignty, which ends up being a, <laughs> a fight between a native-owned corporation's white management and native community <laughs> itself. Um, so anyway. Uh, we didn't like that. Now, what about how about Ralph Rivers and all of this? He sort of always seemed, you know, Greening and Bartlett so dominated, particularly the Democratic political culture. But but people forget, you know, Ralph after didn't want to cross them. But actually, he was uh, he he was helpful. Hmm. At, I don't know, you know, he was sort of. Um, He didn't, I don't remember him ever taking a public position, but if you went to him, and we did sometimes just in discussion, for 
you might say legal advice not a, you know not not that uh, we you know he wasn't paid but I just asked him type um, questions uh, he he would he would help on those I mean he discussed them and draw uh, them now whether he's being academic about it or what I'm, I, I don't know well, I, I guess the the last thing on my list of questions, maybe I ought to write Hildegard about this, but um, I was going through the other day trying to sort of put together a, from the existing sources sort of a, a brief biography of, of Harry Forbes, and I can't figure out what his father did in the Forbes hierarchy. You know, I, his uncles were some pretty prominent guys, you know, and his cousin, uh, I guess Cameron, was, the, you know, the, the Governor General of the Philippines, uh, you mm -hmm. know, after, I guess, Taft. Taft, yeah. Um, but do you know anything about, about Harry Forbes' father in terms of... Was yeah, he a doctor he's also my wife's uh, uncle grandfather. grandfather. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Malcolm. Uh, he really didn't do any business. In fact, that's one reason that that branch of the Forbes, including my wife, <laughs> don't really have any money. I mean, they have they have money, but no, nothing uh, just moderate. Uh, because uh, Mal Malcolm, let's see, he was probably the sportsman of the whole thing. No, his brother, he and his brother Will. His, his brother Will uh, was interested in this. Uh, invention that this uh, teacher of the deaf had uh, made and turned out to be a telephone. He helped organize the business, but he didn't really trust it enough to invest very much money in it. <laughs> it was really funny. Uh, they, uh, you know, that Will was in um, uh, the president of, I guess, the Bell Sister. Right, he was in for a while. Yeah, and, but uh, it was one of these guys who. Um, preferred to keep his money in, 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 in trust rather than investing in this newfangled technology, even though he's head of the company. So that particular branch of the family is in sort of the same boat. Uh, well, Malcolm, um, well, let's see, he bought, uh, uh, he had a trotting horse uh, farm there, which you can see along Route 128 near Blue Hill. Uh, that was his ranch. Uh, he was interested in sporting ventures. He was a member of the New York Yacht Club. He uh, in, uh, supported the building of the, Amer uh, the America's Cup uh, defenders in, 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 in that period. He put his money into that kind of thing. Put some money into the street railways, which wasn't smart. <laughs> Incidentally, Cam told me a story one time about himself. When he, uh, the thing he was proudest of was not being Governor General of the Philippines. The thing he was proudest of was putting together as coach the football team in the early 90s that finally beat Yale. <laughs> but he was hired by one of the, uh, the uh, Boston brokerage houses uh, as a, a young man out of college and sent up uh, to uh, look at this wild scheme that someone had of building a railway to the gold fields in Alaska. And he arrived in Skagway, looked around the hills and decided, this is ridiculous, it ain't possible. Got back on the boat, 
and then shortly after London money put and built the thing, and he, he got fired. <laughs> <laughs> and this is Cameron. Yeah, that was Cameron. <laughs> I knew knew Cameron uh, Joan's grandfather long since, uh, and uh, died, and her father had uh, drowned at sea. So I knew her stepfather, uh, uh, Copley Amory. Well, when did, none of the kids got along with <laughs> when, did, when did Malcolm die then? When did he, um, you time? mean, um, they were both named, Malcolm Jr. and Malcolm Sr. Oh, well, Harry's father, that would have been... Um, that was quite a while, it seems to me that was in the, right about the time of the First World War. <coughs> no, maybe not, no. Because he, first wife died, the second wife was a uh, Dabney from uh, Fayel in the Azores. The Dabneys were originally Huguenot family that went to England and then came over three three brothers to the States about the same time the Forbes of Digits, the early 70s. Two of the brothers ended up in New England. One of them ended up in the South and, and ended up being progenitor of a great variety of black and white avenues. But anyway, uh, the, um, the New England one settled in New Bedford and then uh, got involved in whaling when it really uh, expanded after the re uh, revolution. And went, their son went to the, the Azores and set up a factory, you know, a, a factoring station, a whaling station, supply, resupply, where um, New Bedford whalers would come and drop off uh, the oil and pick up new supplies. So they spent three generations there. Huh. And um, so. Um, the, in the 90s, when Whaling uh, died, they uh, left uh, Fayel, left the Azores, and came back to the States. One branch going to Brazil had really become Portuguese for all practical purposes. And the, uh, and the other coming back to New England, and Malcolm married her as a second uh, wife, and she was the mother of uh, Malcolm Jr. and uh, Harry. So, um, but Malcolm Sr. essentially uh, just left his money in trust. Uh, he did put some in uh, Don Webster, the electrical uh, engineering, and so the family actually ran Don Webster, and a lot of the boys worked for that, uh, worked for them, putting up power companies and trolley lines all over the place. And so I guess that was about as much as uh, anything. The old family. Uh, import-export business became a sort of brokerage, J.M. Forbes and Company. It still exists in investments. Right. Well, I know all the all the checks to the Times were drawn off of J.M. Forbes and Company. Right. And that's that, not, that not was the, the original J.M. Um, um, Forbes, John, um, John Malcolm Forbes, um, who was born, his father was um, the equivalent of a tramp steamer captain, a trading schooner, and he was born in the harbor 
at uh, Bordeaux when they were blockaded by the English in 1800 or so, and then he, the family was uh, broke. He, uh, his mother was a Perkins, and that was uh, Russell Perkins and Company had China trade. You know the the Yankees who came up here and traded for furs and yeah. took them to Ch um, to China. The three brothers, the older brother went, uh, Thomas was there and uh, went to China as a, to take care and be the local representative of Perkins and Company. And they, uh, he, he drowned, uh, they had a 4th of July celebration, they were having a swimming race. And uh, so the two younger brothers went to replace uh, uh, John, actually John M Murray, John Murray Forbes. Uh, was the factor and the other one, uh, Ben Bennett, uh, became uh, a captain and in trade. Uh, John Murray married a Quaker from New Bedford, and she, in fact, uh, I guess one of Lucretia Mott's nieces, sure. and uh, Cotton Mott family. Long Quaker connection on that end of the family, and um, that's how they got Nausham because her father had been the guy who had taken care of Nausham, Swain, and um, the. Uh, anyway, when uh, they started uh, smuggling uh, opium on behalf of the. British co uh, companies, which had a monopoly on it, were being shut out. Uh, John Murray left, and Bennett stayed. A anyway, I mean, that, so uh, John Murray, thanks to his uh, Quaker and abolitionist uh, uh, wife and all, uh, ended up being one of the people who backed uh, Seward and. Uh, Put money into John Brown's little ventures and uh, help pack, uh, help pay for the packing and purchase of Beecher's Bibles with the Kansas abolitionists. Well, that's where the family gets a quite a a variegated tradition. Right. No, there's obviously been a lot written about him. Um, well, he, he wrote. He kept journals. That was one thing. Right. He went over as a spy for Lincoln, but not a spy, but an agent for Lincoln to try and uh, buy up the uh, the Rams of the Confederates, or the whole thing. Anyway, that, that family's very proud. Another cousin, of course, was the commander of the Fifth Massachusetts, and all. Right. Right. Um, well, um, I guess I'm sort of, for the moment, out of questions. Do you think there's anything else about? land claims specifically of that sort of 1950, early 60s period we haven't really talked about? Well, one important? of the things, of course, is that, uh, you know, co coincidentally with the, you know, we, we had this sort of community organizing effort, getting into politics and uh, um, the uh, Quaker help people to help themselves rather than doing things for them. Uh, kind of approach. That was one of the arguments we had with Bartlett. We figured, oh well, we can get money for the rural, which is what happened. You got Bartlett housing, and I never felt that uh, that kind of effort was as useful as uh, the 
working with people like in the beaver work camp. But uh, <laughs> then, of course, uh, when I went to Harvard, we had, uh, I was there when Keppel went, went off to Washington. We had the March on Washington against the, against the Vietnam War. I still got the 1963 button, along with George Sundberg and uh, the rest of them. Hi. He keeps looking in your door, wanting to well, know who's sure. in here. Hi. <laughs> Say hi, Emily. Hi, Emily. Say hi. Hi, hi. Be polite. My gracious, she's growing fast. Seems okay, like. I thought that was just. Hi, hi. Seems like it, doesn't it? Yeah. normal. <laughs> she's just going to wander in. Okay. Anyway. Um, oh. That was all coincident with getting involved with school integration efforts while I was at Harvard and stuff like that. But keeping in touch with what was happening back here, including uh, trying to write uh, people about, um, you know, how to get federal grants on the NDEA, trying to write to Zerodnicek, who was who was the commissioner of education. I didn't know that he had uh, suffering from arteriosclerosis, you know, and. I didn't have any immediate memory, but it was strange <laughs> responses I got. But so we um, helped. I alerted many of the people, including um, uh, Larry Brayton, about uh, the things that were being becoming possible on organizing uh, community action agencies and stuff like that, and. Um, and Head Start, which I got very interested in at Harvard, and so started the more more formal Head Start movement when I got back here. And people had used Head Start grants for sort of summer school the previous summer, but I got there. so uh, in that period uh, from '65 on, I would say the uh, organizing of community action group Fairbanks in uh, rural villages, rural CAP and all that provided a, a training ground for many people, a much more realistic sort of thing than the expectation that we've been doing before. And also brought in a lot of VISTA volunteers, most of whom are still around, <laughs> and people like uh, George, you know, who worked for Region 10. And, um, uh, so that was a big impetus too. Um, but uh, what about? I guess that's something. I mean, it 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 lent form and solidity to, to the right and money too. I mean, it, obviously, you can't organize one. One of the things that happened, however, that is not was not necessarily very good. One uh, one, um, and it bears on what you asked about earlier. For example. Um, the Wien brothers. I knew the Wien brothers, and they were some of the, some of them were still flying in the fifties, uh, not regularly. But um, they had they hired local people to give them radio call, uh, you know, weather reports immediately at all the small villages. Um, people would uh, they had the people they paid the people to come out and sell tickets and pull the whole freight in town. So they provided employment. 
And if a kid came over when they were tinkering with the plane, you know, they'd ask him to give them tools and they'd explain to them. And, and eventually they'd hire them as mechanics. Uh, you know, they weren't looking for, they were, uh, it was an indigenous sort of thing. The same sort of thing has happened with the carpentering uh, and trades during, uh, during the war, you know, the hiring of local people who then became union carpenters because of the pressure of the federal government and and a greening to organize a labor movement, an unracist labor movement. And, uh, and of course the kids who worked for, uh, for Wien became pilots and eventually, you know, Bill English became the top pilot in both the Wien and, and Alaska fleets and actually had, you know, a reputation nationally as one of the top Civilian jet jockeys. Right. I mean, he he was uh, the pilot's pilot in his approach, his flying ability, his ability to the whole bush pilot and thing thing, and then, and the river boats. So there was a greater integration in in the labor force, but it was hands-on labor, which everybody did. I mean, that was one of the things. That was true, of the interior at least in in the in the fifties that. Uh, if there was a split, it was between those who worked with their hands and those who <laughs> who worked with their seat of their pants <laughs> in an office or something like that, or whether or, or were merchants, and uh, that was a sort of split. Was that a Republican-Democrat split? Did it tended to be too, way? but it didn't think people didn't think of it quite in that term because you had you know Republican uh, journeyman carpenters and you had uh, Democratic. Uh, uh, beer wholesalers, when some of whom are doing very well today, so it wasn't really that much. But it was a sort of social split, and it was in both instances. It was a, um, the fact that a native rose in that. You know that wasn't. It didn't seem to matter. But when we organized uh, the, you know, the different corporations, you had more. There are just too many things to do, and even though you had a larger generation of young people, because what about 57? We uh, found the uh, vaccine to deal with tuberculosis and things like that, which was one of the things I corresponded with Rodnicek, pointing out, "Look, these kids are living. They're going to go to school. You got to do something about it." And uh, yours is the 15th receipt. <laughs> Thank you very much for your. <laughs> but anyway. Um, there was there was a real generational split. You still have, uh, you know, I mean, nobody followed belts in the labor movement. Nobody followed Bill English, and you know, um, because and their kids got in. And in fact, the right and the right party business, you know. The, uh, Laura went and died of cirrhosis of the liver in Hawaii after having. Twitter bottom at the vice president most intriguingly at the time. Um, you know, that, that people had created a real place for themselves in, in the economy that disappeared because the next generation, uh, there were too many things to do and, that, and working like that wasn't the play to go. Was much more immediate satisfaction and also money in uh, being you know, going on. A native leader. 
Yeah. Or even a board member, you know. I know I've often wondered, you know, what would all these guys be doing today? You know, if there had never been a Native Claims Settlement Act. They'd well, be running would, the economy. Well, what would the Willie Hensleys and the Oliver Levitts and the John Schaefers and, you know, the people that we all know so well in terms of their domination of... Hundar, Matt, Hundar, um, yeah. Roy would be running a, a corporation about the same right. size. Right. <laughs> right. Well, listen, the, the last thing, and then I'll let you go, is I just got to thinking, um, uh, one of the things that's always intrigued me is the 1966 election because I've talked to Imamadian people that they very much plan to have that first AFN meeting, that first big statewide meeting in October of 66, looking very much toward the November election in terms of who was going to get with the program with land claims and who wasn't. And certainly the people that went down that year were Bill Egan obviously lost to Wally Hickel and also Ralph Rivers lost to Pollock, but but it's my view that, that Rivers got so beat up by by Mike Gravel in the primary out in the bush that there really wasn't much left of him for Pollock to have to deal with. And I guess my question is... Rivers is, was not a campaigner. Yeah. He was an organization man. He never knew what hit him. Well, how about Egan? Did, do you think that the Egan's uh, lack of sympathy for the land claims movement movement in, in 66 uh, contributed to, to that mm -hmm. loss I and mean, was it right? I, I think so. Um, I think yeah I mean Hickel I would I had just come back you know I came back from graduate school that summer and I was just getting interested there, there were a number of things it was fairly close. Well, Hickel only beat him by a little more than a thousand votes statewide. Right. I know uh, one, of, one of the things there had been, uh, you know, that combination, let's see, what, what, what's an important, Borbridge, uh, who was the Commissioner of Community Regional Affairs or the local boundary commission? Wait, in 66? Yeah, from Yakutat. Oh, from Yakutat, not Byron Malott? Yeah, maybe it was a local boundary. Yeah, well, Byron, Byron was working for Egan in, in 66. During the 66 era, he was he was Egan's sort of main native guy. Inside well, we had organized, uh, for various reasons, uh, uh, west of town, Chino Ridge and Esther and so on. We, we had we were trying to get a uh, the right to organize our own uh, town city and was that 66 or but anyway it, I know it uh, it had to do with the Egan election anyway uh, we were not given the right to vote on it and that the decision Sort of the um, well, chair, uh, the chair of Brian Malott, the local Fairbanks uh, rep was Gary Ackerman on the local boundary commission voted for, even though there's, but uh, I think there's a lot of pressure from the FE company, United States Melting, Refining and Mining Company, and um, it had to do with control of the land. I mean, we want we, people want to keep it a rural area, not and uh, the downtown 
people were very interested in subdividing and everything like that. Well, there was a great reaction, even though we had a strong Democratic uh, Party there, there was a strong, uh, because of Nick Begich, I mean, we were organized around Nick Begich's campaigns and, and Greening's campaigns. Um, there was a, I, I remember trying to call Bill Egan and ask him to come up and talk to the people. and. He, you know, the, the Democratic vote was high, and then Ethan came and dropped out like that. Huh. And so that, you know, that was that was maybe 300 votes. I don't know how many of them he would have turned around, but in other words, there were specific other than just native claims. Other there than just other native native things native claims, kind of an election that close. Right. Yeah. Every every little thing like that hurt. <laughs> and uh, you know, sort of losing touch with what was happening. Um, I think he was just uh, overwhelmed. And, uh, I know some people who have been uh, who were more peripherally involved in supporting the native land claim, uh, well, particularly uh, angry at uh, Malat because uh, the, the potlatch wasn't being returned. But I think I realized what it was, or who, who was there. I think he was, you know, some coming to the pressure of the real estate people in Fairbanks and, and the mining company who were pretty powerful and represented by uh, cash and coal. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and I've always thought uh, probably Alex had a little hand in it. <laughs> yeah, well, I've heard a story from uh, Jack Roderick actually that, uh, <clears throat> that when, uh, when Ted Stevens first showed up in Fairbanks that uh, that Ann Stevens, much to my surprise, was actually a card-carrying Democrat, and that she very much wanted to get into acting. He cared what Ted was up to with his egomaniacal ambition that she was going to get involved in the Democratic Party until she met Alex, <laughs> mm -hmm. and that <clears throat> she she flailed around for a while and says, "I don't want to be part of a party that will have Alex Miller running." And that was the end of mm -hmm. Ann Stevens being involved with with Democrats, which is yeah. Well, actually, it was. She, Ted has always been fortunate in that his wives have been both very good, perceptive, intelligent people. And we always sort of rely on getting word to Anne about yeah. things like Ted or other things because it wasn't worth it talking to Ted directly. <laughs> He'd lose his temper about the stupidest things. You know, even when you agreed with him, he got mad at you for agreeing with him. <laughs> and, yeah, I'm familiar with that. Um, well, listen, I very much appreciate you taking the time. This has been very helpful uh, to me in fleshing a lot of this stuff out. And uh, one of the things I'm doing with these tapes when I'm through with them all, and, um, and I've done you know, a whole bunch of people, Lee Monati, I've done Ted, I've done Stu Udall, and a whole variety of people. I'm going to dump them all off at the university. It was one of my real great disappointments. The real outburst of racism was the campaign against Emil Naughty's election. Yeah, well, do you think, uh, you know, do you think uh, the state's prepared to elect Willie to statewide office? I mean, do you think that we've evolved? I mean, it just seemed to me, aside from the fact that I think Emil was the strongest candidate at that time that could have been put up, certainly 
I think it's fair to say it looked like the, the state was not prepared to elect a native to statewide office, period. And I wonder well, whether that I, has I changed. I think we, we could have, except, uh, you know, we didn't uh, form the usual Democratic firing squad and <laughs> formed a circle and fired him. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, that would yeah, almost let me whimper. And I always figured, you know, having been in the bigots group, that yeah, the guy who was uh, supposedly from Texas to help uh, Peggy really was a Nixon plant. He, he was a, a real sort of disinformation agent. Huh. If he wasn't, he was the world's greatest asshole. <laughs> and, uh, well, actually, also, you know, back to these little quirks, you know, if, if Nick Begich's plane had never gone down, you know, in many ways, the Democratic Party went down with him. You know, if if he had lived, he obviously would have moved right into the Senate seat. Uh, you know, the domination of, of Ted Stevens and the reconstituted Republican Party. We never would have lost the House seat, um, and the Democratic Party would be much different. Did you ever talk to Gene Kennedy? No, I hear he's down in Seattle, and he's on my my list. Seattle? Yeah, I, I talked to. Uh, Last I heard, he was over in the, back in Massachusetts. No, well, I talked to you know Mary Lee Council. Mm -hmm. right. yeah. Well, uh, Vic Fisher is an old old friend of Mary Lee's, and uh, actually, I guess I can turn this yeah. off.